two texts in front of us this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. That's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus expounds on his own teaching, and we're going to spend more time actually here in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. The title of the message this morning is Faithful Till the End. Faithful Till the End. There are many confused and conflicting views today concerning the biblical teaching on divorce and remarriage. And this, to be sure, is not a result of a lack of clarity in God's word, but rather a cloudiness of understanding in the minds of men as we view the biblical teaching through the lens of our own desires and our own preconceptions. The Bible's teaching on divorce cannot rightly be understood apart from the Bible's teaching on marriage, which is precisely the reason that we have taken the last three weeks to teach on marriage. As a matter of fact, we'll see that uh, in Matthew chapter 19 this morning when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him about the issue of divorce. He doesn't even tackle the issue, but yet he begins to preach a sermon, sermon et maybe, on marriage. We can't understand the Bible's teaching concerning divorce unless we understand the Bible's teaching concerning marriage. From the beginning, God intended that marriage be a monogamous, lifelong relationship between one man and one woman. Marriage, as it was designed by God, is the welding together of two individuals into one new family unit. There's a blending of two minds, there's a blending of two wills, a blending of two sets of emotions, the blending of two spirits. And God's desire has always been, and it will always be, that this newly formed union would be indissolvable as long as both partners or spouses live. But in a world cursed by sin and marred by the fall, we live in a Genesis 3 world. This unfortunately is not always the case. Not because God's plans have changed, but rather because of man's rebelliousness of heart. You see, the Pharisees, as we'll see in our text for this morning, applied a selfish, man-centered interpretation of the Scriptures. Specifically, as we'll see, and we'll look here in just a moment, they they applied a selfish, man-driven interpretation of Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 24 to falsely defend their desire for divorce. You might find it interesting to note that the, the subtitles or the headings that appear in your Bible, those are not divinely inspired. The text that appears in between them is divinely inspired, but probably many of your Bibles break out verses 31 and 32 in a new section. Let me submit to you that that is probably not the best way to interpret verses 31 and 32. If you just let your eyes glance right back up where we were four weeks or so ago, we were talking about adultery. We were talking about the lust of the heart, the wanting for that which God has not given us. I think that Jesus' teaching here on divorce in verses 31 and 32 is just a seamless continuation of his teaching on adultery. Jesus is just showing the Pharisees that their desire to wash their hands of their wives was just another way, just like committing adultery in our hearts and in in our minds, just another way of committing adultery. So I want you to see that text as a seamless unit, as a seamless whole for which I think it is. The Pharisees here, they're they're interpreting Moses' words. Again, we'll look at Deuteronomy 24 in just a few moments, but they're interpreting it falsely to defend their own desire for divorce, to divorce their wives and yet to save face for doing so. Instead of understanding Moses' words as a divine concession, as a result of the sinfulness and hard-heartedness of man, the Pharisees interpreted the Old Testament Scriptures as a means to their own sinful desires. They interpreted 
Moses' words as a loophole, a way of escaping from their undesirable marriage. But far from encouraging divorce, the Old Testament scriptures actually restrict it. Let's turn our attention to our two primary texts for this morning. We encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Look at Matthew chapter 5, and then if you've got a bookmark there in place, we'll turn right over to Matthew chapter 19 and continue reading. Matthew recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, pins the following words. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Turn just a handful of chapters to the right. Find Matthew 19. Look at verses 3 through 11. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, Jesus, answered, Have you not read that the one who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, and here's a quote of Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He, Jesus, replied to them, saying, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. There is what seems like, at least to me, an insurmountable challenge this morning. I have two primary aims, two very challenging aims this morning. And the reason that they're challenging aims is because they seem to be in direct opposition to one another. Let me explain. My first aim is to affirm, to uphold, and to unapologetically esteem the sanctity or the sacredness of the marriage covenant. I mean, Jesus himself, if we just look back to the text we read in Matthew chapter 19, pointed back to Genesis chapter 2 when he said, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I mean, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, is unequivocally communicating that separating or severing what God has joined together is a very serious matter. Among the greatest of problems in our culture, and there are many, is that marriage is not held in high regard. What is even more tragic is that marriage is not held in high regard in many of our churches across the land today. It's always easier to get our standards from what other people do or say, or what we wish the Bible said. But that option isn't available to us. 
See, our culture, for the most part, views marriage as simply a temporary agreement, a contract between two individuals rather than a permanent, abiding covenant. Consider with me for a moment the difference between a contract and a covenant. I mean, we live in a society that is built around contracts. Verizon would love to have you if you belong to AT&T. T-Mobile would have, love to have you if you belong to AT&T. Everybody wants to buy you out of someone else's contract. We'll pay you to do so. We'll gift you to do so. Just come over here to us. And that's the world that we live in today. We live in a world that is full of frivolous contracts. Our whole society is built around contracts, as a matter of fact. Unfortunately, some view the marriage relationship as nothing more than a glorified contract that can be entered into and then broken with relatively little cost and few consequences. A contract. By nature, it's an agreement that is made in suspicion. That's why so much of our culture, think about many probably of our Hollywood stars and and those who have much, before they sign on the dotted line of marriage, sign on the dotted line of prenuptial agreement. What we're doing is we're dividing our assets before we ever get married so that when we divorce, we know what belongs to you and what belongs to you. You see, we're planning our divorce before we ever get married. It's to view marriage as a contract. In a contract, the parties don't trust each other, and as a result, they set limits on their responsibility in the relationship. You know, a contract can be easily canceled or cast aside on the basis of personal whims or weaknesses. A contract is conditional. As soon as one party fails to meet the obligations or the conditions of that contract, the other party is free from the commitments of the contract. And to view marriage as a contract is to say, now that I have signed, what do I get? The focus is self-centered, and it's about receiving, not giving. Think about a covenant, on the other hand, for a moment here. A covenant is an agreement that is made in trust. The parties love each other, and they put no limits on their responsibility in the relationship. A covenant, unlike a contract, cannot be easily broken. It cannot be easily cast aside because what has bound a couple together is not just a piece of signed paper, but the Lord himself. You see, a covenant is unconditional. It's not altered or changed or discarded because of a failure to meet expectations. To view marriage as a covenant before God and each other is to say, I am giving myself to you unconditionally and without reservation. The focus is on laying down your life in sacrificial serving. You see, a covenant demands the death of two wills. I becomes we, only to be separated when one precedes the other in death. You know, statistics can be bent to tell you just about any story that you want to be told. But as we look at divorce statistics over the last hundred years or so, the picture that those statistics paint is absolutely devastating. In the early 1900s, only one in ten marriages ended in divorce. I mean, to terminate a marriage was viewed as taboo, maybe even treasonous. By the 1920s, the divorce rate had risen to one in seven. You can see the trend and the progression here. By 1940, it was one in six. By 1960, 25%. One in four marriages ended in divorce. By 1970, 35% of marriages ended in divorce. And today, for every marriage that lasts a lifetime, sadly, there is one that does not. 
Sadly, one of every two marriages today does not pass the test of time. It does not weather the storms, and it does not cross the finish line. This is not God's design for marriage. And so my first aim this morning, I said I have two challenging aims this morning. My first aim is to uphold and to esteem the sanctity of the marriage covenant. To hold it in very high regard and to encourage you to hold it in very high regard, married or single. That our view of marriage would change drastically. We would honor the institution of marriage as God has designed it. My second aim, and this is where the rub comes this morning. This is where the the conflict seems to be here. And that is that I want to point us to the cross where Jesus Christ was crucified to cleanse us from all sin, including the sin of adultery and divorce and the guilt and the shame that accompany them. And so, in one hand, I want to hold high the sanctity of marriage, and in the other hand, without compromising that high view of the sanctity of marriage, I want to uphold grace and a forgiving Savior whom we sang about this morning. Those two aims seem to be contradictory. To hold one high seems to logically diminish the other. And to hold the other high seems to logically diminish its counterpart. The sense of guilt and shame and failure and rejection that accompany divorce is felt so deeply more deeply perhaps than any other human experience. I mean, there are accompanying feelings of loneliness and betrayal and abandonment and helplessness. I mean, divorced people oftentimes feel as though they are relegated in some way to the outfield of the church. We, the church, have a hard time mixing truth and grace, and so we treat those who are divorced as kind of an anomaly. I mean, we really don't know what to do with them. We don't know what box or file or category to to put that in in our hearts and in our minds. And so though we would probably never verbally say anything, the way that we end up treating the divorce in the church is sometimes like a second-class citizen. And so the challenge lies in trying to honor and esteem the sacredness of marriage without dishonoring and condemning those whose marriages have failed. How do, you, how do you balance the importance of honoring your commitment uh, to your marriage vows while at the same time not making those who are already divorced feel as if they walk around with a big scarlet D on their shirt? How do you do that? How do I elevate the permanence of marriage without condemning the divorced? How can I call us to faithfulness without making the divorce feel unfit for service in Jesus' church? Well... Pray for me. By God's grace, I desire that we walk away this morning with a sense of firmness of conviction for marital fidelity, but at the same time a fresh awareness of God's magnificent forgiveness and grace. Okay, Bible Chapel, let's hold them both high. I want to be compassionate to those who have failed without compromising the high standards of Scripture. You see, in a culture that sees marriages crumbling regularly and the sacred vows of marriage so easily dishonored, God's people need to be immovable in their convictions. I mean, like a concrete pillar in the midst of turbulent waters, we need to commit to the permanence of marriage, even if we failed. 
We need to be committed to the permanence of marriage, regardless of our own personal experiences. You see, compromises on the sacredness and the lifelong permanence of marriage, those positions that one would take that weaken the solidarity of the marriage union, they may feel loving in the moment, but taking such a position wreaks havoc for generations to come. Preserving the solid framework of the marriage covenant with its high standards, it may feel tough for now, but it produces 10,000 blessings for future generations. You with me, Chapel? Let's hold them both in high regard, all right? The solidarity of marriage and the forgiveness and grace of Christ found in the gospel. The whole of Scripture affirms that God's heart is grieved by man's departure from his divine plan for marriage. Turn with me, just real quick, a few books back, or a book back, to the left. Find Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Again, all of Scripture affirms that God's heart is grieved by man's departure from his divine design for marriage. God speaking through the prophet Malachi. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 16 communicates the following words. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears. With weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, or yet you ask, for what reason? Here's the reason. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against you who have dealt treacherously with your wife, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You can read on the next couple of verses there, but you can see that God's heart is broken, is grieved over divorce. As a matter of fact, we'll see in verse 16. God says, for I hate divorce, declares the Lord God of Israel. By the way, the Lord God of Israel, the name of God there, it's our covenant-keeping God. That's why God hates divorce, because it is a picture. Marriage is a picture of covenant-keeping. Remember week one? Let me ask you a question, just practical maybe. When does pre-marriage counseling begin? When does pre-marriage counseling begin? Let me submit to you that pre-marriage counseling begins at birth, and it is carried on all throughout the teen years. You see, a goal of any Bible church The goal of our church is to teach and disciple God's people to stay out of the statistics and to pursue strong marriages that are built on the foundation of Christ. And so young people, unmarried people, youth, even younger people, let me get your ear for just a second. This message is for you. This message is not just for the moms and the dads who are happily married. It's not just for the moms and the dads who aren't happily married. And it's not just for the moms and dads who were happily married at one time, became unhappily married, and aren't married anymore. This message is for you, young people. Listen. Let God's word permeate your heart and your mind. Pre-marriage counseling is for you today. It's not just those 16 weeks or so before you get married. It begins at birth, and it is carried all throughout the teen years. Well, let's turn our attention to the divorce controversy of Jesus' day. 
And the two texts before us this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and then Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12, Jesus takes up the issue of divorce. And we should probably say here that Matthew 5, the first text before us, can hardly be thought of as representing the sum total of Jesus' teaching concerning divorce. Matter of fact, they seem to be a very abbreviated version of Jesus' teaching on divorce. And that's why, just a handful of chapters later in chapter 19, Matthew fills it in with greater detail from the teaching of our Lord. And So having said that, we would be very wise then to look at these two passages together and to interpret the shorter passage in light of the longer passage. In Matthew chapter 19, which you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to camp there for just a few moments, just so you don't have to be turning back and forth. Matthew chapter 19. What we learn is that the Pharisees had conveniently worked out a neat and tidy way of getting out of marriage, or so they thought. But Jesus blows the whistle on their erroneous interpretation of the law. We're going to look at that law here in just a minute. It appears in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus blows the whistle on them, and he points them back to God's blueprint for marriage. Remember, Jesus doesn't answer their question about divorce. As a matter of fact, he begins to teach them about the sanctity of marriage and takes them all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. God's blueprint for marriage. Friends, I would submit to you that we need to hear Jesus' whistle blowing the same today if we would try to interpret Scripture in a way that God has not intended it to be interpreted to meet our own desires. Let's look back at the text here again. Let me read it in its entirety. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 11. The Pharisees came up to him and they tested him. They were oftentimes doing that, weren't they? And they asked him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Here's the quote, Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And they said to him, or their reply to him was, Well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus replies to that statement, saying, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And here's Jesus' disciples' response. Bless them. They say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. Now, let's talk for just a few minutes about this Old Testament law. The Pharisees were coming and saying, Jesus, what about this? What about what Moses said? Jesus, what do you have to say about that? Let's talk about that Old Testament law for just a moment. Go ahead and be turning in your Bible. Hope you have your walking in the word fingers ready. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. Verses 1 through 4. To understand the Pharisees' question concerning the acceptable causes for divorce, we've got to look back at the Old Testament text that they brought and held high before Jesus. Again, that's the text you've just turned to. Let me give you a little bit of context before we read. There were, in Jesus' day, two rival schools of thought as to the interpretation of the indecency that Moses talks about 
in Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll see it in just a second. Moses is going to talk about a divorce being acceptable because of some indecency found in a husband's wife. And so in Jesus' day, there were two primary schools of thought as to what Moses meant when he spoke of an indecency found in a wife. Indecency literally means the nakedness of a thing. Both schools of thought were named after the rabbi that exposed them. So you've got one school of thought, that's the Shammai. You've got Rabbi Shammai and all of his students who believed his way of thinking. And then you have Rabbi Hillel and all of his students. Okay, so there's just a little bit of context for you there. Two schools of thought about what, G, about what Moses means, rather, when he speaks about indecency in Deuteronomy 24. Now, let's look at the text. Look at verses 1 through 4. Moses writing here. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, there's the word. Okay, we want to know what does Moses mean when he says find some indecency in her. That's the whole debacle that Jesus is in with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19. If the husband finds no favor or if the wife, rather, finds no favor in her husband's eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs from his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man, or the second man, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, that's husband number one, who sent her away first, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, four verses there, focus on the first two, specifically the indecency problem. That's, that's what Jesus is being confronted here with in Matthew chapter 19. Now, those two schools of thought, you got Rabbi Shammai, his followers, Rabbi Hillel, his followers. Well, Rabbi Shammai, he took the conservative road, and he interpreted the indecency that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 24 to mean only some grave marital offense or infidelity. In other words, Rabbi Shammai understood Moses as saying that a man may not sever his marriage outside of marital infidelity. Now, Rabbi Hillel, on the other way, on the other hand, you probably can tell uh, here who his followers are, namely the Pharisees. He took a much more liberal road, and he interpreted the indecency in Deuteronomy 24 as being anything that a husband did not like or approve of in his wife. So according to the Hillel school of thought, this would be where the Pharisees are here, a husband could divorce his wife for burning his breakfast. Husband could put his wife away for speaking to him in a manner that he deemed to be disrespectful. Husband could put his wife away for embarrassing him in any way, shape, or form. Or simply because his wife became less desirable in his eyes because he had become enamored by the beauty of another woman that he found to be more beautiful in comparison. And any other reason under the sun. All these and an endless list of other trivial offenses were justifiable grounds for divorce. Now, this was the prevailing view, according to the Pharisees. And so what the Pharisees are doing is they're coming to Jesus and they're really asking this question, whose side do you take? 
Which side are you on? Are you a strict adherence to the law kind of guy? Or are you a lax interpreter of scripture kind of guy? Which are you? Which side of the argument do you fall out on? I want you to notice three differences between Jesus and the Pharisees' understanding of the Bible. Three, three distinct differences between Jesus' understanding of the Bible and the Pharisees' understanding of the Bible. Number one, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce. But Jesus, on the other hand, was much more interested in God's intention and divine design for marriage. All the Pharisees could think about was what are the grounds by which I can sever my marriage and it be okay. Jesus was preoccupied or interested, on the other hand, in God's intention for marriage. You see, the question the Pharisees wanted answered here, again, was which school did Jesus endorse? Where did Jesus stand on the divorce issue? Was he conservative or liberal? Was he strict or was he lax? You see, the way the Pharisees framed their question, it clearly uh, revealed where they stood. I mean, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? I mean, talk about lay your cards on the table. We know what they believe here and what they're hoping to hear affirmed. They're trying to trick Jesus into taking sides, but Jesus eludes their trap. Jesus oftentimes eluded the scribes and the Pharisees' traps throughout the Gospels. But here he eludes their trap, and he appeals rather to the original divine and intention for marriage. Now, notice how Jesus answers their question, or doesn't answer their question. He says nothing about divorce, but instead he speaks to the institution of marriage. Again, he points them all the way back to Genesis 2.24, God's blueprint for marriage. Look at verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. It's interesting to note here that the word translated man in Matthew 19.6, look at verse 6. Let not man separate. It's the word anthropos. It's the word anthropos. It's the, the, the general term. For male there. It's not the word that distinguishes between male and female, but rather the word that distinguishes between human and divine. And so the contrast that Jesus is making here is if God has joined the man and the woman in marriage, then man, that is literally humans, have no right to separate what God has joined. Since God created this sacred union, with his sacred purpose in mind to display the unbreakable firmness of his covenant love for his people, then it simply does not lie within man's rights or prerogatives to destroy what God has created or joined. I want you to see there, the Pharisees, they, they, they were all interested in what the grounds for divorce were. Jesus, on the other hand, was much more interested in God's intention and design for marriage. The second thing I want you to notice from the text there is the Pharisees, they called Moses' provision for divorce a command. But Jesus calls it a concession due to the hardness of man's heart. Look at verses 7 and 8. They, the Pharisees, said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce 
and to send her away. He said to them, Jesus replied, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you, that's a concession, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You see, since Jesus didn't answer their initial question about divorce, the Pharisees, they fire another one at him. In verse 7, they ask this, if God's design is that marriage be permanent, then why then did Moses command a divorce certificate be given to a wife before she's sent away? You notice what the Pharisees did right there? They twisted Scripture. They twisted Scripture. Moses did not command anything. Moses, by God, gave a concession to his people because of the Genesis 3 fallen, sinful, marred world that we live in. But it was not a command. See, they're trying to trip Jesus up here in their argument. Jesus was brilliant. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, initially, all the way back to the garden, initially, all divorce was inconceivable. Then sin entered into the world. Then sin entered into the world. Do you remember just a couple of weeks ago, I told you that the biggest problem in your marriage is what? It's you, and it's me. Ultimately, it's our sin. Sin is the greatest problem in marriage. So often what happens in marriage, and I see this in my office more times than I'd like to admit, I have a couple that are just going after each other, and they have forgotten what the original offense even was. They're just so intent on winning. Sin is the issue. Sin is the issue. If we would spend more of our time and more of our energy attacking problems and not people, marriages would look a whole lot different. Sin is the issue. Don't fight your your spouse. Fight your sinful flesh. Crucify it and its selfish desires. See what God might not do in your marriage. Remember, I do means I die. You stood at the altar and you repeated those words and you said, I do. What you were in effect saying is from this day forward until you lay me in the ground or until I lay you in the ground, I commit to die daily. So antithetical to the world's thinking. That's why we plan our divorces before we ever get married. Divorce, both then and now, is a departure from the original design for marriage. It's a concession. It's not a command. If there is divorce, it's not because God intended it to be that way. It's rather because we're sinful. God has made a concession for human weakness. And what was the purpose for this divorce certificate, you ask? Well, the purpose for the divorce certificate was to serve as a, as a deterrent for a hasty, frivolous, thoughtless action by a husband. It it, it was meant to put some roadblocks in the middle of the road that he would have to stumble through before he just dismissed his wife because she burnt the toast. 
or because he found another woman more attractive and more beautiful than the woman whom he married. You see, what Jesus is really condemning here in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 is lust. That's what the Pharisees were after here. In their lust, they wanted to be able to have another wife and to send the other one packing because they found her more beautiful, more attractive, because she did this better, because she, she spoke more uh, eloquently to him. She wasn't disrespectful in any way. She bowed to his every whim. And so ultimately the issue here, at least in Matthew chapter 5, is the issue of continued lust. The Pharisees were just looking for loopholes to dissolve their marriages so that they could feed their lust. And so this divorce certificate that was instituted in Mosaic law was to serve as a deterrent from a hasty, frivolous, thoughtless husband. It was meant to testify to the woman's freedom from her marital obligation. It wasn't her fault that her husband put her away. It declared an end to that marriage. And it declared that the end to that marriage was was caused by something less than a violation for her marriage vow. Let me explain that. Do you remember what the punishment was for adultery? It was a stoning. And so if, if there's adultery taking place in Deuteronomy 24... We don't need a certificate of divorce because we don't have a living party anymore. Make sense? And so it's not because adultery has taken place. And so Moses allows this certificate of divorce that frees the wife who was just discarded as an object by her husband because he wanted something else instead. Third, the Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. But Jesus took it so seriously that for only one exception, he called remarriage after divorce adultery. Look at verse 9, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Friends, we need to be very careful that we don't functionally operate just like the Pharisees. We need to be ever more focused on the, on the, on the, on the intention of God's de- design for marriage than we are on the permissible grounds for divorce. I mean, Jesus indicts the Pharisees for adultery because they were guilty of putting their wives away and remarrying other wives and teaching others they could do the same with no No issue. The Pharisees thought that only a little paperwork was required to legalize their lust, but Jesus says, no, not so. Well, and this is a sensitive issue here. But the question must be raised, what, if any exceptions, are there in Scripture that would justify the severing of a marriage union? What if any exceptions are there given in Scripture that would justify the severing or the sundering or the disjoining of a couple united in marriage? While we must underscore the fact that divorce is never instructed or encouraged, 
there do seem to be a couple of exemptions or a couple exceptions given in Scripture. Now, having said that, if you filled a bus with theologians or Bible teachers, you'd have as many explanations when it comes to the way we should interpret these exceptions as you do Bible teachers. Okay? That's just another way of saying good men differ on the issue. Okay? But it does appear as though there are a couple of exemptions or a couple of exceptions given in Scripture. The first would appear right here in our two texts, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, and Matthew 19, verse 9. Jesus says, except for, remember he's talking about if one divorces his wife and she remarries, she commits adultery, he would also be guilty of adultery, by the way, except on the ground of sexual immorality. The word translated sexual immorality there, it's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our English word pornography from. It's a very broad word. Uh, It includes a lot of different sexually promiscuous acts. Now, it's important that we note, though, that Jesus does not say that pornea necessitates divorce. No one is required to divorce his or her spouse because pornea takes place in your marriage. Nothing, not even adultery, puts marriage beyond repair. Let me repeat that. Nothing, not even adultery, puts marriage beyond repair. And here's why. Because you cannot out God's grace. Now, that doesn't mean that pornea or sexual immorality in marriage does not cause a world of difficulty. It does not mean that it does not dash trust. It does not mean that it does not sever what years of marriage faithfulness have built in the heart. But God's grace is sufficient for every marriage woe, friends. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that God's grace superabounds. You can never outsin God's grace. Though there may be an exception here for sexual immorality, Jesus is not condoning, he's not encouraging, and he is not commanding that you leave your spouse because there's been sexual infidelity in your marriage. As a matter of fact, if we looked at Scripture in its entirety, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we would see the theme of redemption and grace and forgiveness. But Jesus says that divorce, to divorce a spouse on any other grounds other than sexual immorality, at least it seems here from our two texts, is to make a husband or a wife commit adultery, that is, if they remarry. So it's not that the wife, if she's the innocent party, or the husband, if he's the innocent party, we'll talk about what that means here in just a second, becomes an adulteress or an adulterer just by being divorced. You see, Jesus envisions here, specifically a wife, because that's, that's who we're talking about here, Jesus envisions a wife, a wife getting remarried. And the reason behind that is because a woman in Jesus' day could hardly support herself apart from being married. And so Jesus envisions that wife that was divorced getting remarried, and now you have adultery. Now, here's the question that has to be asked, and good men differ on this issue as well. If, if an individual has been divorced on grounds that would fall outside of the exception, okay, and they remarry. 
Is that individual, is that couple guilty of the act of adultery? Or is that couple or individual guilty of the ongoing state of adultery? In other words, is that couple living in continual adultery? Good men differ here. But I would submit to you, based on biblical teaching, that what has taken place is the act of adultery. Because Jesus recognizes second marriages even in Scripture. Remember the woman at the well? I mean, Jesus looks at her and he says, uh, the man you're living with now, he's, he's not even your husband. You've been married multiple times before. So Jesus recognizes second marriages. Now, that marriage can be born in sin, I would say, based on the overwhelming evidence of Scripture that that couple is not living in the state of adultery, but yet they committed adultery at marriage. Now, that being said, that adultery that was committed at marriage is no different than any other sin, and it can be repented of, and forgiveness can be granted full and free. And so again, while I don't want to diminish the biblical teaching, I want us to hold on the other hand a firm grasp on God's forgiveness and God's grace. Even if you're divorced and remarried remarried on grounds that were not inclusive of the exemption or exception clauses that are defined in Scripture. There's another we'll look at here in just a second. And you remarried. I think based on Scripture that the marriage was adulterous and that that can be repented of and that grace can abound. I don't believe that couple is living in the state of adultery because Jesus recognizes in multiple places in Scripture subsequent marriages. So sexual immorality, Jesus says, except on the ground of sexual immorality or pornea. Now, the second place that Jesus does not touch on but that Paul touches on is that of desertion by an unbeliever. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7. There's a whole lot more that could be said about Ephesians or Ephesians. Got Ephesians on the brain. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as it pertains to divorce and remarriage. I'm just specifically going to say a few things about verses 12 through 16, okay? Because that's the exemption that Paul seems to make here. Look at the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. I'll read it. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. A whole lot that could be said about those couple of verses. I'm not even going to touch it this morning for lack of time. Paul goes on and he says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, and here's the issue, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, for God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, the first possible exemption or exception that we see in Scripture is given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. 
that of sexual infidelity in marriage. The second is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 17, and that would be desertion or the leaving of one unbelieving spouse, leaving the believing spouse. Now, it's important to note here that Paul isn't telling the Christian spouse that he or she is free to divorce his or her unbelieving spouse. doesn't mean just because you're married to an unbeliever that you have license or you have the okay or the green light to divorce and leave your unbelieving spouse. That's absolutely not the case. That would fall within those verses I said I don't even have time to touch this morning about being sanctified by, by the believer. Paul, Paul's not telling us that just because you're married to an unbeliever that you can divorce your unbelieving spouse. But he does say, however, if the unbeliever chooses to leave, if the unbeliever initiates the divorce, then the Christian, Paul says, verse 15, is not enslaved. Your version may say is not in bondage or under bondage. Now, you ask yourself the question, not enslaved to what or not under bondage to what? Well, I would say here that that means not enslaved to pursue the deserting spouse. In other words, if you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever leaves you and deserts you, what Paul is saying here is that you don't have an obligation to run after that unbelieving spouse who desires to sever the marriage union. Now, I would say this, as believers who have been shown incredible mercy and grace, Ephesians 4.32, with the same forgiveness that we've been shown, we ought to show grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so I think there ought to be some tension in our heart as to how this would practically play out. But Paul is saying here that we're not enslaved to, we're not under bondage to run after the the, the deserting, non-believing spouse. In other words, Paul is saying that it's not necessary for the believer to contest a divorce action brought against them. Now, the practical problem here, and this could be a whole sermon in itself, is what's the definition of desertion? How how broad or how narrow is, is that definition? And I would say we've got to walk or tread very carefully. Oftentimes, we would appreciate if God's word were clearer in some areas than it is. That's not because there's a defect or a default or a deficiency in God's word by any means. It just means that God has revealed to us what he wants to know, what he wants us to know. And sometimes that leaves us with unclarity. And there is some unclarity here as to what desertion would, would fully encompass I mean, some pastors, some Bible teachers would say that it includes physical abuse or sexual abuse or abuse of children or drunkenness or financial recklessness or irresponsibility that endangers the family, that those things could fall under the desertion clause. And I I would just say, approach that like a yellow flashing light. Slow down and proceed with great caution. Okay? We must be very careful in interpreting God's word where it is not explicit. Let me say just a few other things this morning as we bring this to a close. What about marriage and divorce prior to conversion? There's there's no way that I could speak to every instance or or every uh, detailed nuance of every marriage that's even sitting in this room this morning. But I want to say a few things uh, about marriages. 
One of those questions would be, what about marriage? What about divorce that took place prior to my conversion? I mean, there, there are many individuals. As a matter of fact, there are probably some of you sitting in this room who have come to know Christ after you've been married and divorced, sometimes more than once. And as with all sin, the disillusion of marriage prior to conversion, I would say, is absolutely wiped clean. In other words, this means that a person who divorced before becoming a new creation in Christ is permitted to marry another new creation in Christ and to establish a Christian home regardless of their previous history. I mean, the Corinthian church was presumably filled with couples like this. I mean, in his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul said this. He said, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and he says, and such were some of you. Some of you were adulterers. He includes in the list. But he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so if you have a divorce in your past prior to conversion, I think Scripture gives you the freedom to remarry. There is a condition, and that is that you remarry in the Lord. You take a believing spouse. But I think there is freedom to remarry there. What about remarriage after the death of a spouse? Again, I think there's absolute freedom here. The death of a spouse frees one to remarry. As a matter of fact, that's what we say at the altar, right? Till death do us part. I mean, Paul said this in Romans chapter 7. He said, For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul said something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. He said, the wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. And then here's the condition, only in the Lord. Friends, let me say this as we land the plane. What, what, what's the takeaway here? What's, what's the sticky thought for us? I mean, there, there may be some areas here that, that you disagree on. There are areas here that many good men disagree on. I think we want to seek to interpret Scripture rightly and divide it rightly and hold it in high regard and to not give license where God's Word does not give license. There is some difference of opinion when it comes to the issue of marriage and divorce. But I think at the end of the day, here's the takeaway for all of us. Whether you're married to your first spouse, whether you have been divorced and you're single sitting here today, whether you've been divorced and you're remarried sitting here today, what is the takeaway for you? I think the takeaway is this, is that we as believers must be committed from this day forward to the sacredness and the sanctity of marriage. We must not give an inch. Be committed to it today. The attitude that we should come away with here is one of great humility. I mean, we ought to be left saying after we try to walk through these, and and incomplete at best, as we try to walk through these verses, we ought to come away saying, wow, marriage is holy ground. And it's not something to be messed around with. 
Regardless of our cultural relativism or the opinions of our social and therapeutic experts, marriage is a sacred, permanent covenant only to be dissolved by death. Take that away. No matter what your state is this morning, take away the fact that if you are married, that marriage is to end only by death. Far from backing out when the going gets tough, spouses are to sort out their difficulties in light of Scripture. They're to hang in there. They're to work on their marriage because they vowed before God and each other to love each other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health until death parts them. And as believers, we need to do all that we can to honor what God honors and to esteem what God esteems. You might be asking yourself this question this morning again. What if I've already broken God's standards here? What if I'm divorced? What if I'm remarried? What do I do? Many believers are in this situation. And again, let me just remind you, friends, if that is you, every sin, as in every sin we commit, we must confess our sin, repent where we fail to meet God's standards, and then commit to upholding them from this day forward. We want to be very careful not to try to justify what God hates, and that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing in our text for this morning. For those of you here this morning who have gone through a divorce or are divorced and remarried or are in a marriage that is very difficult, Jesus' words here can seem burdensome, but let me assure you that they are not. They are for your good. Remember, Jesus interprets the law for us here, and he says this is God's divine standard. God ordained marriage. Genesis chapter 2, and God hates divorce, Malachi chapter 2. But then Jesus Christ, our victor, the great captain of our salvation, went to Calvary and he took the punishment for our breaking God's standards. This is not license. Far be it from us to ever interpret it as license. But it should be of great encouragement to us. Here's our great hope, friends. No matter what our marriage status, no matter if by God's sheer grace we've been successful to this point or we failed, no matter if we've been faithful or faithless, Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, will be faithful to us till the end. His mercy and his grace, they cover our every iniquity, and we celebrate that this morning. So from this day forward, whatever your state, be faithful till the end.